Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. Are we there yet? Oh, we got there in the end. Yes. We are. Sorry about that, everybody. We had a slight technical issue with our streaming service. We are now live. Yes, marvellous, isn't it? Yeah, two, our two-week holiday that we felt we had earned after um, after the hustings and the hurly-burly of all the local elections kind of accidentally turned into a six-week holiday. Well, yeah, but it wasn't exactly a pleasure cruise on your part, was it? No, no, it's true that I have been... Um, I have been laying about with my feet up, but um, not in a particularly good way. Yeah, for those of you that are choosing uh, choosing holidays or places to go this summer, I fundamentally cannot recommend sepsis and uh, and three weeks in QA. Um, wonderful as the staff were, um, again, it, it's uh, I'm only I'm only scoring it a one star on TripAdvisor. Okay, but it's not really the kind of place you you want to return to, is it? No. No, so apologies for uh, for the the delay and the the missed opportunities of all the hurly burly that was about. And personally, I just like to thank all of the. There were some really lovely messages on the uh, on the apologies that you had to send for postponing. So I would like to thank all of our listeners and all those that follow secretly for those uh, those goodwill messages. They were much appreciated, and it was lovely to see it coming from across the political spectrum. That. Uh, it says we can sometimes leave our divisions aside. So, uh, no, greatly appreciate that. And uh, it's great to be back. It's good to have you back. It's good to have you back. It, it wouldn't have been the same to consider it without you. No, no. I think there's an element of of my headstrong ying to your sober yang is the, is the way that the, uh, the podcast does its thing. Different people might use different words to describe either of us, to be fair. But, yeah, uh, yes. Yeah, let's go, let's yeah, go with that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll work with that, I think. Yeah, Let, let's stick with that. So, what are we doing today? Well, we have a smorgasbord, don't we? It's It's been a, a long few weeks, lots of, uh, lots of stuff. What are you talking about? Nothing's been going on at all. It's been well, really boring. Yeah, it's, it's well, it's, again, it, it's that, it's a little bit of deja vu, isn't there, that uh, some things remain the same and some things change. But, um, yeah, we, we thought we'd just pick a handful of topics from uh from the recent week's development and uh give them a good kick around and uh and see what we think so uh starting yeah. with the only way is ethics <laughs> um yes so yes yeah, so the only way is ethics so boris johnson lost his advisor this week i believe that's not the first is it i i, I don't remember the, the the story first time around um, but uh, yes, his his ethics advisor resigned, and then I think came in for a second bite, clarifying, no, 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 that's not just the reason I resigned. Um, there was more. Uh, yeah, so um, so uh, Lord Goit decided to guide out of here, I guess. Um, so um, after after facing a grilling um, in the Coleman's Select Committee, um, he decided enough was enough. That was the straw that broke the proverbial camel, camel's back um, and sent a um, a letter of resignation. Um, but as you say, that is um, the second uh, ethics advisor um, that Boris Johnson has lost as a PM. Uh, the first one resigning um, after Boris Johnson's decision not to... Um, not to consider um, Pretty Patel's uh, treatment of Star. She was because um, there were those um, allegations regarding uh, the investigation into bullying in the workplace, um, and Boris Johnson considered that that wasn't a breach of the ministerial code, and off went his first ethics advisor. Yeah, and I think this is where it, the, the, the you know there there are I mean the the, the easiest. The easiest joke or, or or meme or whatever one you want to kind of tap in is the, you know, Boris Johnson as an ethics advisor. Who knew? Um, but again, I, I I kind of look at look at this from a point of view of, um, what what a funny old role that must be. It, it does feel like. Um... It does feel like trying to um, trying to give oven gloves to a to an arsonist. 
as as roles go. Yeah, but I I think there's this piece where you know if you look at so Lord Guy, as I understand it, previously worked for the Queen and was kind of um, a very well respected, knowledgeable kind of one of those sort of grey men behind the 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 seat of power. And I guess the the, the role of the ethics advisor kind of I suppose, seeing as the majority of us didn't know that one existed, you kind of think, well, I guess what what is or was their role? Um, he's been through two, and I saw a clip on the news yesterday that suggested when sort of asked, well, are you going to find another one then? Um, he was very circumspect about answering that particular question. And I guess there's an element of does the role, is it just another invented civil service role that, that you know, what, almost what's the point of it? Well, I mean, you could ask what the point of it is if you're not going to listen to them. Um, there, I think you've got kind of like a, what's the, what's the value in it? But the, I guess there, there's clearly a role for it. Other, other you know, prime ministers of, uh, I'm presuming, have value from, uh, from having one, um, and um, and have felt solace in their in their council. Mm. But um, I guess the you know the point of gaining advice from someone is you're not always going to agree with them, and sometimes if the person that you're seeking advice from doesn't you know feel strongly about the advice that they've given you, and you go another way, that they they're only you know their only kind of course of action open to them is to say, do you know what? There's no point me hanging around if you're not gonna if you're not gonna listen to me. Um, and his, um, I mean, in, in his letter, it was, it, you know, it was quite kind of clear. It's like, you know, uh, I, I, where is it in the paragraph? Um, was it so? One, two, three, four, four, in the fifth paragraph this week, however, I was tasked to uh, to offer a view about the government's intention to consider measures which risk a deliberate and purposeful breach of the ministerial code. This request has placed me in an impossible and odious position. My formal, my informal response on Monday was that you and any other minister should justify openly your position vis-a-vis -vis the code in such circumstances. However, the idea that a prime minister might, to any degree, be in the business of deliberately breaching his own code is an affront. A deliberate breach, or even an intention to do so, will be to suspend the provisions of the code to suit a political end. This would make a mockery not only of the respect for the code, but license the suspension of its provisions in governing the conduct of Her Majesty's ministers. I can have no part in this. It's pretty, and that's you know that's as close to a to an Instagram microphone drop and storm out as you can get, I guess. Yeah, no, and and it, and it, it is that, uh, and I guess this is where it, 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 it's interesting because it, it will come on to some of the other topics that we touch on. It's this balance between ethics and codes of conduct and and legal frameworks. So there's this piece where, you know, as an ethics advisor, your your role it would seem is not to not to take almost a, a legalistic or kind of you know a, a black and white letter of the law stance but it's more about sort of that you know well almost is, is what you're doing in the spirit of the law or the spirit of the game rather than the letter of the law well yeah because if it's about the letter of the law then that's what you've got an attorney general for um mm. although one could say that differing attorney generals have have given different advice to differing uh, prime ministers. In fact, at times, given them different advice about the same issue, having been mm. given quote unquote time to consider their position. Um, but this is about, you know, is the prime minister or the prime minister's ministers of Her Majesty's government breaching the ministerial codes, the Nolan principles under which they're all meant to, uh, you know, they're meant to, um, you know, they're meant to conduct themselves mm. um, and. You know, as a, as a as I joked at the beginning, trying to convince Boris Johnson to follow anybody's rules is um, a bit of a hiding into nothing. So I, I can I can kind of imagine a situation where that feels like a thankless task. But I also can't find I also find it str a struggle to imagine a situation where anyone with half a brain would not think that was going to be an impossible task. Yeah, I mean the the taking of the job is is, is I, I mean I think I think for me the 
the uh, in terms of this episode and it bringing some clarity um it would seem that not replacing uh, lord guy is is the best thing that could possibly happen because there's almost this element of i, I kind of mused on it as we were thinking about the episode it's almost like inviting you you know taking on the services of a, a personal trainer and then inviting them round for pizza and beer you kind of well that's not their role it's that almost they're kind of trying to encourage you in a different direction and it, it seems clear that um boris is prepared to plow his furrow and you know if from time to time that comes close to or even breaches the nolan principles this is where we get into this very thorny issue of you know the the arbiter of right and wrong then becomes the prime minister and if the prime minister is the person who is knowingly breaking the rules well what happens next well yeah i'm i mean i know we covered this in a previous episode but yeah that's the weakness in our in our constitutional setup because Mm. um because a lot of how our parliament and our government runs doesn't rely on on a written convention or written constitution it relies on basically just unwritten uh, conventions or um you know effectively kind of principles case principles so yeah when the person making the ultimate decision is the person there is no mechanism by which to hold that person to account and despite us being a constitutional monarchy i can't really envisage a situation where the queen is really going to ring up boris johnson and say you're a lying toe rag. You, you are out of order, off. sweetheart. Um, Get out of my pub. Because that isn't really also the, the, the purpose of the monarchy in, 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 in quote-unquote, our unwritten, glorious constitution. So, yeah, to me, there's all sorts of things. At the end of the day, everybody at every level of power should have accountability and should be accountable to someone and not be able to fudge those rules in their own, in their own favour. But fudging the rules in your own favour does, unfortunately fit the modus operandi of the man that randomly quotes latin and good use of modus operandi so i know just see so, what uh, i did there yeah, yeah no no i thought it was uh, it was a very bold move so yeah so guide has gone I, it looks like there isn't going to be a replacement and um in terms of finding the, well, the god knows he needs one but will he listen yeah well but i guess we've seen this before haven't we in 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 recent recent global politics you know again you you think back to, you know, with a shudder to President Donald Trump, you know, who was famous for, you know, the number of times where it was like, you know, just isn't interested in being briefed. You know, it's that kind of, well, just make it up as you go along. You're not taking the advice for those from those people around you who are actually doing the due diligence and the work and the the kind of, you know, the the... The, the legwork, um, and I guess there's that element of, there is a certain desperate honesty, and if you say, well, I'm not going to bother with an ethics advisor because I'm not going to listen to them anyway, um, yeah, that's... Uh, well, that's I mean, a, maybe it's a job Carrie can go for, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah no, no, it's, yeah. Uh, it, it's a bold, if slightly, uh, slightly scary development, so... Um, yes. Yeah, so if we move on from from a, a point of of principle and ethics, and uh, lots and lots of legal shenaniganery earlier this week, as Pretty Patel's first one way ticket to Rwanda and her beautifully chartered plane ended up sat on the runway with with no people in it. Yeah, just minutes before it was it was due to part depart the UK. Um, it was it was stopped after a after a ruling uh, from the ECHR, um, basically saying that you know there wasn't really a recourse for the for the persons being deported to challenge um, challenge their deportation and, and be effectively um, represented. Um, it basically the kai the on the kibosh was put um, now. The you know there's the I, th- I think kind of the the question that we were posing when when we um when we looked at the 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 content for the show was aside from the um people will have differing views about whether that's a good idea or whether that's a a, a bad idea I I 
think it's an odious and disgraceful idea for various reasons. But the point that that we thought was worth actually exploring is actually is this going to be effective at all? Isn't it just actually a great big waste of money? Yeah, and 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 I I think you know again we've we've got to do, without going too deep into it, haven't we? The, mm. the, there is an element of if we look at the you know and again it's a very it's a very emotive issue when you look at effectively uh, i'm going to use the words uncontrolled immigration so you've got the situation where um you know last week more than a thousand people to our knowledge because we obviously caught them or they landed or they you know they they crossed the channel in small boats and that then claimed asylum in the UK. So, so that is the that is the the, the reality of what's happening. We we did an excellent episode on that. Um, you know, working with some of the people from um, who, who work with the, the these folk. Now, mm-hmm. the element of and and the argument that 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 basically comes across is that there are only finite resources, and the cost be that financial, social, whatever, of allowing thousands of people to flood into the UK to claim asylum, we can't afford, we don't have the resources available to do that. We can't afford it. So the the Rwanda plan was basically put out there as a, as a, a discourager to say, well, okay, you, you land in the UK. If you land on the back of a lorry or in a small boat, we are going to send you to Rwanda for your asylum claim to be processed. And if you are legitimately claiming asylum, then you can then claim your asylum, but in Rwanda, not the UK. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the memorandum of understanding doesn't seem to provide any provision for when people's claim is application is successful that they actually get brought back to the UK. The only mention of bringing um, deportees back to the UK is the paragraph where it mentions um, effectively the UK may legally be forced to ask for you to return some people. If we do that, can you bring them back? Um, otherwise, it doesn't mention it. No. And essentially, it, conti- it continues to talk about, um, it continues to talk about uh, effectively um, whether someone's um, application for asylum is successful or not, they are treated as a either a successful or an unsuccessful applicant for asylum. Or if their application is uh, for asylum is denied, then basically an immigration application um, process in Rwanda under Rwandan law. Um, so it, I, I don't know. There's a as I say, I'm trying not to kind of steer too much into the into no. the thing of actually, I think it, I think it's an appalling idea to be effectively for the government to be a people trafficker themselves. But from a perspective of we're spending millions of pounds in sending people to another country, um, when actually, even even before the appeals started taking place, what was it in kind of you know mid mid double numbers? Yeah, so um, so, so it's, and, it's and, not exactly a high percentage of. Yeah, and, the, and, this is where, is and this is where for me, I think it's important that we explore that that kind of background mm. because it is an element of, you know, the, the, the legally, you know, and this is where we've got to be very clear on this, and I think it's where people sometimes get confused. You, 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 you know, an asylum seeker does not have to claim asylum or is legally entitled not to claim asylum in the first safe country they reach. So once they've reached the EU, they're in Greece. Greece is a perfectly safe place. But they are, you know, legally entitled to cross Europe. Uh, and what we see is that there are a number of people, for whatever reasons, you know, want to effectively, when they when they play their I would like to claim asylum card, want to do that in the UK. Yeah, and the, and the people, as you said, that we'd had on before, they do that usually because um, because either they speak English or yep. they have connections to the UK, so they have family members. Um, that are already here yeah um so that's why this is the you know that this that's why they're choosing this it's unfortunately the you know certain parts of the media portray this as um as the uk getting um you know being at the brunt of a larger flow 
of asylum seekers or indeed migration because those are two very different things yep. uh, than other countries and that's that's just not the case we're just at the end of a long journey for lots of suffering uh, you know terribly vulnerable people as they struggle and literally kind of either walk or hitch their way or you know smuggle themselves onto trucks etc as they make their way across europe so it, it's a it the trouble is is trying to take the rhetoric out of it yes um and it and it's almost like you know is the government's idea that by creating this as part of a um as part of a culture war situation as part of a um as part of the quote unquote we're under siege to think of that 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 yep. billboard from uh, farage farage um to create a they they in a, in a, in some ways is it to their benefit to force people to put themselves on one side or the other of this argument when actually the practicalities of the measure that they've put into place are such that actually is this is this ever actually going to work is it well, is it i mean it was announced yep. in april is it has it shown has it created any deterrence has it created a reduction and, um and, in people putting their lives at risk in small boats coming across the channel well no and and, and that's where i think this and this is where if we try and look at it the ab, in the abstract and dispassionately the oh. the rhetoric is if you come across the channel in a small boat because you want to get to the uk you're not going to get to the UK. You're going to land in your small boat and we're going to take you from the small boat and we're going to put you on a plane and your best possible outcome is you are going to be able to claim asylum, but you won't be in the UK. You'll be in Rwanda. So don't cross the channel in a small boat. That That's the, if I frame that in terms of that, I think is the message that is trying to be sent. Herein lies, and this is for me, where the numbers don't add up. Because mm -hmm. if you look at that first plane, you know, the plane had 292 seats on it. There were about 30-odd asylum seekers who had been given a piece of paper to say, you're off to Rwanda. Which you think, well, that's 10% occupancy. It's half a million quid to charter a plane. So... If you look at the cost of that per person, you're thinking, well, you know, hang about. That's, you know, for a one-way ticket ticket to Kigali, that's fifteen thousand pound a head. Well, that doesn't strike me as particularly good value. And then when you start to go, well, okay, that was thirty. But to your point, if it was announced in April, and okay, as the weather starts to improve, the numbers are getting bigger and bigger. But if there are a thousand people landing this week, that's four of those charter planes full to the brim. And obviously there'll be immigration staff on there as well. So you're talking five, six full charter flights a week to Kigali. If that is your, because I guess if, and this is for me, if I, if I put myself in the position of the asylum seeker, which you touched on there, very eloquently, you've been through a massively long journey, through incredible hardship and peril. If your chances of being on the plane to Kigali are 30 in a thousand. It's not exactly like the odds aren't in your favour, is it? Yeah, to be fair, if you've, if you've come from Syria or Somalia or, you know, uh, Turkey or kind of Iraq or Iraq, I'd take them odds. Yeah, I mean, you've got a greater chance of being um, uh, of being caught speeding. And this is for me where I really struggle. Yeah. And people still do that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 that's why I sort of, you know, this this policy was very was was very beloved of the far right, wasn't it? You know, it has it, it kind of it, it it has that perfect kind of well, you we don't want them here. Stick them on a plane to Rwanda. That sort them right out. Yeah. Well, it 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 it's, it 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 feels like it's chucking red meat to um to voters of that kind of disposition um disposition. Sorry, the I mean the Conservative Party quite 
quite often trade on their we're the party of law, law and order um, kind of thing. Um, and they've subsumed, um, uh, you know, the, the kind of the protecting our borders um, to the point of kind of fortress Britain kind of um, approach that the, you know, some of the some of the parties like UKIP, etc., um, were, were probably greater mouthpieces of than the Tory parties. You know, if you think of that, you look at the Tory party in, um, in 2010, you look at Cameron's Conservative Party compared to you know this Conservative Party, you couldn't imagine them them having something like a policy but like this. But then again, when Theresa May was Home Secretary, the you know, that was when the um you know that that's when the kind of the 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 environment of the you know the hostile environment to um you know to unauthorized migration. Yep. Um w- was was kind of you know talked about, you know, with you know Vans going around London, basically, you know, with loud haters and advertisements saying, you know, it's time to go home, time to fess up, guys, get out. Um, it's, I just, and and it's, and it, and I just, and I just find it really painful and embarrassing and shameful because actually, aside from all of this politicking, and aside from the, you know, whatever the political motivations may or may not be, and and how successful they may or may not be, it's a waste of taxpayers' money. But at the end of it, there are people suffering. And and I just think it's a horrendous way to treat people. Yeah, and I kind of I I do get that. That doesn't even work. Yeah, yeah. And, and and that's where for me, look, I I you know cards on the table. I I have a real issue with uncontrolled migration. I I, I think it is, I, I I think it is a real problem. And you know the fact that there are, you know, seventy thousand people waiting to have their asylum claims heard. You know, and again, even at a thousand a week, that's, you know, that's a backlog of 18 months. And I think, you know, there is, there is a, there is something that, that, that needs to be, you know, it's that element of, and I guess that's where probably we've ended up where we've ended up because, you know, within the legal framework, there, there is literally nothing the government can do. You know, and again, you hear lots of lots of kind of rhetoric. Oh, we what? You know, we need to turn them back. You know, well, that's illegal. You can't do that under maritime law. You know, you 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 know, you can't send them back to France because that's you know there are no easy solutions to this. So what 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 I think we've ended up with is a is an ineffective. We just want to look the the people that keep moaning at us about this we just want to look like we're doing yes. something that look that, that they will believe to be effective because it's yes it's tough and hard and hard on it and it's but that's the that's the thing if if there aren't enough legal routes to migrate or to claim asylum um and the ability to be able to do that i mean what was the thing about you know the french offered to set a basically an asylum application center up in calais but um pretty patel decided to set it up in Lyon, like 450 miles away yeah. So yeah. you know what what use is that? At the end of the day, it's almost like it, are you deliberately trying to make it so that it's as difficult as possible to do it legally, and then wondering why people do it without following? The, I mean, you know, we're British. We you know we we love documentation and we love cues. So we we you know we can I can guess us being incensed by the concept of well they just didn't do a pro- proper application or they just didn't stand in the right queue. Well, give them somewhere to queue or give them a way to process an application. And and it seems strange that we can and even though they've made a half assed cobblers of the of the job of processing um applications of people fleeing from ukraine that just kind of shows if that's what they're doing for people that they decide are the right type of um asylum Mm. seeker or the right type of migrant then it kind of just shows the lie of well actually there isn't really an effective mechanism for for the others well and 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 i think that's a whole conversation and i'm and i worry that 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 actually takes us in an, into a quite a horrible place. You're almost disappearing off the screen, mate. By the way, yes, you're so, so relaxed. Sorry, you're I, am, I, I am having to to move about just to keep the uh, um, to because although moving. I am I am out of hospital, I I have more um more holes in my leg than is ideal. So I'm having to do a little bit of moving. So you might okay. have to as long as, well be comfortable. I don't want yeah, you to yeah, exactly deal with my disembodied voice. Yeah, no, and I think the difference between the the, the whole Ukrainian thing it's often it's about documentation, isn't it? And and there is this piece where, um, you know, the majority of asylum seekers who appear in small boats appear with absolutely no documentation at all. 
Um, so the, the ability then to, to, to process an asylum claim is, is, is very, it's tricky, isn't it? Because there's an element of, you know, if you turn up with no documentation at all and you say, well, you know, I am person X and I am from here. And the reason why I want asylum from pick Middle Eastern country at random. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, 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 I get that. I understand that. But there's a there's a there's also a, a counter argument to, well, hang on. Did the pe- did the people fleeing Ukraine did all of them get to stop to go home and actually pick up their yep. passports and yep. and utility bills and stuff? No, they they didn't. And that that was kind of one of the things that was kind of cra- was crazy about our application process, was that there were other countries that literally said, look, rock up and just just get to the border and you'll be fine. I think that was that was what the Polish uh, the Poland the Poland's yeah. approach uh, to it was. Not exactly um famous for their uh, to be honest for their um you know for their approach to migration or to asylum seeking. No. Uh, previously, but from a humanitarian perspective, look just get here and we'll yeah. we'll get you safe. Um and we're just missing the humanity on this and instead being chucking process as a barrier instead of actually using it as a way to help people if people are applying rather than that costing us money to house them or to ship them somewhere else where's the conversation about okay then let's register them well and let's let's get the applications processed in a reasonable amount of time let's get them earning money and paying taxes let's get them into society rather than actually you know kind of held up in in a cell you know being treated because the worst the worst of that is that you know if their if their application is genuine and i i would call me naive but i think that to struggle all the way across across europe um that there are much better and easier ways to to um you know to effectively to to come and to come to you know to come to any point of safety if that was kind of your point you've decided for for whatever those reasons are to come to the uk um if you've been through all of that and actually then what you're effectively done is held in a detention center for 18 months two years while the uk government processes your application that's it's just inhumane yeah no and i and i think that's where we that's perhaps where we stand on different sides of the fence isn't it It, it, it's that element of you know i i take a i you know my sort of view to that is that you know you you've you've if you are genuine, you've come from a place of genuine risk and genuine, you know, risk of being at genuine harm. Once you've got somewhere that is safe and you're no longer at genuine harm, I, I am doubtful of the motives of the people who then say, well, I'm perfectly safe in France or wherever, but I'd really like to come to the UK. Now, you know, that that's 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 where, as you say, that is about a, that's an emotional non-factual response that you know it's how you view it's how you view the people who are trying to cross the channel to to make their home in the uk um you know but if you also don't provide facilities in those third countries for people to apply using using the correct process for asylum to come to this country you're giving them no choice but to but to turn to the you know the the you know the the people that you know must be i mean god amazon must be doing a bundle on buying you know inflatable boats or something yeah the old rib yeah you know so um you know and that that's kind of the thing to me is that it's it's almost like every other argument about it being as simple as legal and illegal and um if something is illegal you should just not do it actually there are times where the law is an ass um and and actually the the solution isn't uh, isn't a straight of we're just going to criminalize everybody that's breaking this law that we've set at this arbitrary point there's a there there are ways to deal with the root cause of the issue that help you address that without using this this just seems all shout and bluster and no actual real productive yeah and outcome. i think i think that's where we can agree that ultimately mm whether you agree with it or you don't the thing that it's it is proposing to be doing it isn't doing that no it um, fails it fails on every level yeah yeah so there we go we've we've got to a point of agreement on that one um mm-hmm. oh i might have to go a bit careful here with my blood pressure with <laughs> so okay so our so our next one so next week 
um, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Um, there's going to be a strike action uh, from RMT um, members that so they voted eight to one in favour of strike action over uh, jobs, pay, and conditions. So um, 40,000 workers employed by Network Rail and the 13 net rail operators uh, will be going out um, going out on strike on those days. Um, there'll be severely reduced services on those days and only to kind of mainline routes. For example, there won't be routes to London coming from Portsmouth yep. on those days. Um, so get yourself to caution. Uh, people if you're trying to head to London or just don't um, it's not really going to help Jacob Rees-Mogg's um, you know um, his march to get people back in the office is it um, but yeah so from a perspective of and I think the way we were framing this this kind of question was actually the rail industry is um, it was supported during during Covid um, like many other industries did a fantastic job as key workers actually keeping the country uh, country going um, but the the you know the the before COVID recovery hasn't happened. Actually, passenger numbers are down by about thirty percent. Um, the industry uh, has long been considered that you know there are elements of it that need to need to modernise. And in that sort of environment, is it a fair expectation to be saying, actually, we want you to tell us there's going to be no job losses, and we want um, basically even though we've had pay freezes for the last two three years. Um, we we need a, a basically a, a pay rise that's um, that's commensurate with the with the rate of inflation. That's yeah. ki that's kind of it. The the grant chap grant chaps the treasury um, sorry the transport minister is pretty much saying that it's the rail operators' um, job to sit down with the RMT. The RMT as far as he's concerned are being belligerent. The RMT is saying that grant chaps isn't sitting down with him. Because he's essentially the person that tells the tells the train companies whether they've got money to be able to spend on these sorts of things and um, making those requirements to um, modernise, like those. What was it? A couple of years ago, the way before COVID, the you know the the strike issues that went along the the southwestern rail line about the the government saying that they basically they needed to invest in driver uh, sorry guardless trains so that drivers are the ones um managing the closing and opening of the doors and the safety of the train and effectively the person that would remain on the train wouldn't be as wouldn't be as part of the safety mechanism of the departing of the train just someone there to help with customer inquiries yep and unions didn't like that because that's a degrading of the of the sta of the of the stature of that member of staff and therefore that caused a massive strike so it's almost like the the train companies are almost being made to have a proxy war with the unions because the government is saying we're not going to keep giving you taxpayers money unless you modernize so sort your game out and modernize your industry and then the train companies go right union this is what we'd like to do and the, and the union says no yeah so is that where we are no well the the, the piece i don't agree with the, the only bit of that i don't agree with is the proxy war thing because there's a situation where, um, you know, for me, we, we, we have changed the way we live our lives. And that means that in terms of that rail commute, um, the, 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 you know, the, the post-pandemic arrangement sees 30% less traffic on rail than it did before the pandemic. So that, that is the reality of where we're at. And the piece that I I just can't get my head around is in any industry, in every industry, how how can a union or a group of workers based with a 30% drop in demand go to their employer and demand that there are no job losses? That, that is a farcical request. Well, there's a third less people than there were before. The demand's down by a third, which means our incoming revenue is down by a third. But you're not allowed to make anybody redundant, even though due to the drop in traffic, they may have no work to do. Um, so... I get, I get the, I get the arguments of in any in any industry if there was such a massive change in how the business was operating, um, you 
you would need to be looking at your operating model and seeing what needs to change. I, yep. I, I, I entirely get that. Um, completely kind of underst understand that that um, that that theory. Um, and in other industries, you um, in in actually completely privately owned industries. Sorry, in completely. Yeah, um, you you would you'd be driven by the fact that there'd be competition in the marketplace. There'd be other things that would be kind of forcing um, forcing it to happen. So, in a weird way, because we have a kind of halfway house model in our rail network, which is that we have actually heavy government involvement, heavy government subsidy in the rail network, but actually private companies that are then actually dealing with a regulated and fractured market. It means that they don't get to control actually some of the bits. Um, you know some of the bits that in a, in any other organization um that, that that they would so in some respects it certainly looks like um and i and bear, i'm just conscious that i'm not an expert in the railway industry so I, I don't know but you know from what it looks like i can appreciate that it's a large industry that doesn't seem to move um, or take as many opportunities to move with the times with, of technology as it as it could, both in its operation, its day to day operation, um, and and in its maintenance. That, but that's the same of any probably any massive large you know large organisation like that, um, particularly one that effectively is spread over such a large geographical area. And to fix most of the issues, you require massive, massive um, fundamental investment. So I, I get kind of the problem. I get the idea that, look, sorry, guys, we can't still run train services in the same way that we did when we had, you know, when we had a, you know, when we, you know, look, did in the 1980s. Te technology has moved on. Um, there are there are different requirements. And actually, we're moving to a point where there are things that we could be doing differently, both on platforms and on, on trains themselves. I don't know yep. what those things are. Um, it'd be well, lovely to have someone from within the industry to come speak about them. But, it, but, but you have to be realistic about that um, in the same way that you, you know, there's no point trying to... Um, there's no point trying to say, well, we definitely need to invest in more in more coal pits because actually what we don't want is a load of miners to go out um, to uh, be unemployed. It's awful, but actually we need to move away from... Um, from fossil fuel industries but but there should be we you need to kind of manage that in such a way so that people yep. aren't just discarded and kind of kicked on the heap you can't you can't stick it stick the industry in aspect aspects is that the right thing no and dip it in aspect it in amber. yeah aspect so, so, and, so, and kind of preserve it forever so i yeah uh, yeah so so the deal for me is this simon which is that mm -hmm. again i was watching a documentary last night on on 1976 and as it moved into 77 and the winter of discontent. And this is so archetypal. The RMT is still living in 1977. You know, it, it was exactly the attitude that they're displaying that caused the destruction of the mining and the steel industry. Because effectively, they, they when, if, when you talk a proxy war, the RMT is looking for a proxy war with government. They are looking to muscle flex and say, we, we, you know, the the, the 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 requests are so outlandish. You've got a third drop in demand. You're looking for a guarantee of no job losses. Oh, and by the way, we want a pay rise commensurate with inflation. We want a 10% pay rise with a third drop in demand. Those demands are ludicrous. They are risable. You know, you talk about the modernization of the rail industry. You know, it is obvious the way it should go. You know, we talk about driverless cars. You know, we have driverless trains. You know, the Docklands Light Railway works with a driverless train. You know, ultimately, the, 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 the train isn't going to take a wrong turn. It's going to run on the rails. And it'll start and it'll stop at platforms and the doors will open and people will get on and people will get off. But there is, you know, to give an example of how far away we are from that as a potential outcome you know i i just find this incredible that you know you are in a situation where the rmt are able to effectively cripple the rail network to to attempt to gouge a set of a, a set of demands which are just well they're beyond ridiculous you know, no, nobody in their right mind would uh, accept those within the RMT are rubbing their hands together who think 
yet we, we'll get the right outcome from this. Um, nobody in their right mind believes, can believe I, what, what they're doing is justified. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they, I mean, they are, I'm, you know, I wouldn't want to say that they're not in their right mind to say that, uh, and to say that their action isn't um, justified. At the end of the day, you know, their workers voted overwhelmingly yep. in, in support of strike action. What they're, uh, you know, what they're trying to put on the table as as, as what they want, um, you know, may or may not, you know, at the end of the day, that's not, a, you know, that's not a decision. I can't, you know, I can't see how that's practical, but from yep. a point of not being funny that, you know, it, it can only, they can only go down from there, right? They can only, they can only kind of row that, row that back to, to yeah. some point. But the, the, the thing for me is I, I just find it, it's really showing you, you see kind of stuff about, you know, saying that, you know, trying to label that this strike is the fault of a particular political party when the RMT isn't affiliated with that particular political party. Um, you see, you have the interesting thing of Grant Shapps, the transport uh, minister, um, saying that, right, well, effectively, can't secure it. We'll, we'll get agency staff in uh, to run the trains. Well, is this the same Grant Shapps that a couple of months ago was, was having a go at P&O for getting rid of, basically for firing loads of staff and replacing them with agency staff? Yeah, and, it, just, and, it just kind of seems that on one hand you've got to, on one hand you 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 know at the end of the day it's not a museum it's a working transportation network yep. and therefore needs to operate in the twenty first century, um, but that needs to be done with the consent um, and with the involvement of its workforce in order to be able, in order for it, that to work, it work can't well. Be. It, it but, can't. Well, no, well, no. It, yeah, well, no, it, it can be because there's, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the other side of the argument get to sit there, fold their arms, and say no changes, nothing actually, you know, nothing, nothing can actually alter at all well, because that's just not the industry that we work in. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, but it's interesting. You draw the parallel with P and O. Yeah. So the P and O, the P and O arrangement. If we look at that, and again, I look at these things, you know, despite political rhetoric, through the lens of reasonableness. You know, and, and the question, I guess, is is when most people looked at the P&O arrangement through the lens of reasonableness, dismissing all of your UK-based staff and then employing contractors that were being paid less than the UK minimum wage, that, that is not a reasonable move by the employers. And, and, you know, again, even the staunchest of capitalists would look at that and say, I believe, well, obviously the P&O didn't, but believe that that was not a reasonable move. And I think if we mirror that image to the position of the RMT to say no, absolutely no job losses in a 10% pay rise, that for me is the, is the same level of unreasonableness on, the, on their that, you know, I, I see that as equivalent as P&O, you know, just randomly sacking their workforce and replacing them with foreign contractors that aren't earning minimum wage. OK, um, I guess um, I know that from our political spectrums, we come we come at this from kind of different angles. I don't believe in kind of persevering it. Um, it's not, you know, we can't I, dip I, it in amber and, and, and leave. Sorry? I agree with Corbyn. <laughs> what, national, um, nationalise them? Absolutely. I, I, I would nationalise. The, the franchise model is a false model. You, you're not Yeah, but I know, what you're, I, I know what your condition is on this one. Which is a fair and reasonable condition, which is that, I, that we should run the railways for the benefit of the country, not for the benefit of... of pseudo private companies to claim a profit and not for the benefit of a union stuck in the 1970s looking to gouge the country um to 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 make unreasonable demands so i think the 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 option of 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 renationalizing the railways as a non-unionized environment would um would see everybody win especially those poor bastards of which I am no longer one who would like to get to work uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and are not going to be able to. Um, funnily enough, I'll disagree with the second part of that premise because um, this is where I, I start to sound more and more left wing. 
Um, I believe that every worker should have the freedom to join a union if they feel that they need to. Yeah. yeah. And and enforcing that people can't join a union isn't, it's basically just a recipe to allow bosses to screw people over because at the end of the day, that's what they tend to do. Mm, With, without there being a, a fair, and uh, this is where I kind of pick up your point, without there being a fair balance of give and take, yep. it isn't, it, yet basically someone ends up getting screwed over. On one hand, if you if you're so inflexible that the business can't change with the times, basically the business fails. Yep. And the only reason it doesn't fail is because basically it's propped up by uh, taxpayers' money. Um, you, you know, we've seen in the last 20 years examples of businesses that just didn't move with the times, just didn't kind of see how technology and the environment was changing and, and basically went out, went out of yep. business as a result. On the other hand, you also see businesses now that pretty much insist on not having uh, having their workers not as member of a union and working and f find ways to effectively not pay them um, the minimum wage and effectively um, task them with all of the costs of operating the business and none of the benefits. So you know you're talking about the delivery drivers, you're yeah, talking about kind of you know the Ubers and all all of those sorts of things. So I think there needs to be a a fair and reasonable compromise, and you need to have it on both sides and. And I, I think and the only and, and the only way for the workforce to achieve that against a powerful business is to is to um, is to is to form a movement is to unionize to be able to have to speak as a as a collective voice to have collective bargaining. Jesus Christ, I'm beginning to I'm beginning yeah, you're, to you're, mate. You are. You, there is power in the factory, power in the land, power in the heart of the worker. Look, it's just because I, I watched the Pride film again recently. That yeah. I, you know, it's the whole thing about supporting yeah, the miners. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, but, I think you probably need to to listen to "There Is Power in a Union" by uh, by Billy Bragg at this point. So no, I think what we can agree on is is, is these things. You know, there, there there should always be a there should always be a fair balance and you know a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. I think there is a you know where, where that line is drawn is obviously going to be subjective. Um, I, I, and I think I, I, my my worry in this, if I'm being you know candid, is is uh, I I see echoes of the behaviour of the National Union of Miners, the National Union of Steel Workers, who ultimately when they decided to take an ideological position uh, as they did in the, the late 70s and early 80s uh, and came into massive conflict with the government those two industries were destroyed by that that conflict and tens and tens and thousands of working people lost their jobs forever uh, which were well-paid jobs at the time because I mean, they were, I, because everything went too far, and I, I, I you know, I, I, will we see something similar? I think because of the, the complexities of the franchise system, possibly, probably not. But um, yeah. But, but I, I wonder whether politically, the the Boris Johnson's flavour of conservatism, will relish that fight because it's again it's red meat. To, oh, yeah, no, no, um, to, to typical conservatives who might have been ready to desert him recently because they are standing up again. You know, they can, there's an argument to, they can make, an, they'll try to make an argument of we're standing up in the interest of normal people yep. against these, um, against these. You know, they'll say, un, you know, these undemocratic, overreaching, overburdening. Um, you know, pretty much similar to the words that you've used to be honest. Yeah, with yeah, you, all, no. the, all these unions, and they'll and they'll make that fight, and ironically. That will give Johnson another election, general election. It, it could could well do, and that that for me, and again, this, this is where for me, if I if I look at the behaviour and the posturing of the RMT, that they are that they're they're providing a very easy target, because they're, yeah, you know, they're they're kind of falling into that trap a bit, aren't yeah, they? By basically, yeah. they're. they're banging those drums and the government all the government needs to oh this is brilliant it's fantastic well it's, you and, know it's and, just and yeah, and, and as know. you as you say there is an element of even the government looking to exploit that in the in drawing the parallel of you know this is what you would get under labor um you know under labor mm. the 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 unions that are the paymasters of labor would be emboldened to take this sort of action now it's a thin mm. parallel i i believe but it's it's an easy one to draw um so for mm. me the the you know and this is where i i quite often find this in these you know with these massive unions 
there is an element of if it does all go horribly wrong and tens and thousands of people lose their jobs, the gobby union leader that appears on breakfast television, you know, he'll be forced to take his final salary pension and his big puff and go and live his life uh, forever in um, forever in comfort, brothers and sisters, as um, you know, his his work will be done. So. Right, so let's draw a line under that one because otherwise I'll get even more cross and nobody wants that. Yeah, okay. Watch the watch the old blood pressure. We don't want to see you back in hospital. So we're going to have to be quite... Um, ironically, considering the second one is about are we concerned that there's a danger that the war in Ukraine is going to drop off the radar? I'm just concerned that we are actually running out of time. We've only got five minutes. But in short, the, there's a danger that the situation in Ukraine, as it goes on longer, um, p- um, people being the... Um, not really kind of having the staying power and the attention spans to continue to to focus on the suffering of the people in Ukraine and Putin's mm. yeah, oh, I'm sorry to be a little bit Putin's kind of mur- Putin's murderous war in Ukraine that actually if that comes if the if the if the world's media starts turning away while we're looking in the other direction then basically Russia starts to you know effectively starts to starts to win the support seems to you know danger, the danger is that starts to ebb away um, pretty much every European leader going has, has gone. Boris Johnson's gone a couple of times. Um, but notice, noticeable absence of visitors to Ukraine has been um, has been President Biden. Um, so the first lady of the United States went to went to Ukraine for a surprise visit in May, but not um, so. Flotus has been not, but not Potus. Yes. No. So um. So you know we're we're in a situation where, uh, and again. Uh, the, the the situation in Ukraine is, is that kind of, and I think when we mooted this as a topic, Boris kind of turned up the next day there to to show support. Yeah, I, I guess my worry is that you know R- Russia is uh, under Putin is 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 hell bent on trying to achieve something. You know they're still denying it's not a war, it's a special military operation, and all that other nonsense. Um, so you, you, you kind of that they're not in a position, you know, the rhetoric coming from Russia is as strong as ever. And I think it is that element of, you know, keeping Ukraine in those first few, you know, in the headline bar of the the, the news is important because, you know, the, the, the risk, isn't it, is compassion fatigue. You know, it, it's that few analysts believe that, that whatever the end game is, it's going to happen this year. Um but it is keeping that on the agenda, which is the the best hope for the Ukrainian people in terms of that global support. Um, it, it is indeed. And at the end of the day, it can only be... Because um, there are only two possibilities, really, aren't there? There's the Ukrainians suing for peace under some sort of, you know, by, um, you know, effectively giving up some territory. Yes, yeah. Um, or there's them defeating the Russians. Yeah, and the latter, um, the latter and, isn't going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the former has to be a decision by you know the um, by the government of the, of Ukraine. That's not something that that I think Western Western leaders should be no. uh, you know or indeed Western podcasts should be postulating about because this is their country for crying out loud, and that has to be their decision. But at some point, someone's going to have to make the horrendous point of at what point. Does this stop? Yeah, I mean, the, the the third option is the death of Putin, isn't it? You know, it, it, it is a it, it it's the death of Putin and a seed a significant leadership change in Russia. Um, with without that that you know the the course you know this is very much Putin's war, isn't it? And mm. and we would need to see a shift from that. So, no, my hope is that you know again, it stays in the world world's media i i i do you know it looks like it looks very clear there have been so many war crimes and atrocities committed i think even your suggestion of a a redrawing of borders um you know that that might stop the shelling um but um where it goes from there is uh it is another matter no. it, it's just, it's just yeah it's just hard and impossible to see to see a a to see a route to basically to a cessation of hostilities <clears> to a, to an end to you know to Putin's you know barbaric invasion of, of Ukraine um it's hard to see it, you know 
there's already been enough suffering. The problem is, is that that's not going to, you know, the sooner that ends, the better. The problem is that there doesn't seem to be a route to which that ends. And that's the, you know, that's the truth about war. It's a horrible, disgusting, um, despicable, violent, indiscriminate business. Yeah. And, um, and we have a war being raged on a European continent on a peaceful, civilised country. Absolutely. And, and you know, like you say, once it starts, it's very difficult to stop that. Well, time has beaten us, old chum. We've uh, we've we've rattled through. Um what about the? You didn't want to quickly tip it, or did you? Have you lost interest in interest? Well, I think it's th- 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 that one's that one has complexities that we can't cover in thirty seconds. So, okay. what we might do, we'll, what we might we'll do with that one is, is um, as it's a bit of an economics question, is maybe uh, maybe we'll pull a guest in further down the road and uh, and uh, go back to the cost of living crisis and interest rates. We'll, we'll, yeah. We'll see if we can invite back our our, our tame and barely resident um, economics lecturer. Sounds like a plan. Um, it sounds like a plan. Okay. So marvelous. So after six weeks, you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris, and I've been Simon Sansbury. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics podcast, blue and yellow till we die from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. Stop. See? It's easy.